Good afternoon, everyone. This is Jan Barris. I'm the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to welcome an old friend here today to be part of our Profile series. This is a, well, now it's not so new, but a series that we've been running for a while, but it's a very select one. We've only had a few iterations of this series, and it's for people that the committee knows well, that have been involved with the committee over a number of years, and it's an attempt to get a little more personal and delve into people's backgrounds and their lives and what made them get involved with China or Asia in the first place. I'm delighted to be here with Professor Ezra F. Vogel, the Henry Ford II Professor of the Social Sciences Emeritus at Harvard University, which is a very long and formal title for someone who's so familiar to many of us at the National Committee, someone whom we're very fond of and with whom we have a long history. I'm Jan Barris, the Vice President of the National Committee, and a few years ago we started this profile series mainly to talk to people who have a long connection with the National Committee, as Ezra does, to just get a sense of who they are as people, why they got involved in the field of China, what it has meant to them, to their lives. And I, I can't think of anyone these days who I'd rather talk to more about this subject than Ezra. Uh, in looking back in our files today, I found that Ezra actually, I thought this, but I wasn't sure, was among the first group of members to join the National Committee in our founding year, 1966. And upon further perusal of the files, I found that he immediately, as is not surprising, jumped right into involvement with the committee. Ezra doesn't just sign up and then walk away from something. Ezra signs up. Well, I believe he, in the committee, and I think you were doing great things. I don't have time for everything, but I have lots of time for the National Committee because well, I believe in it so deeply. That's wonderful. And you apparently <clears throat> believed in it deeply right from the beginning of because course. you were involved in the first publication we ever released in 1967, which was an annotated bibliography of modern China. And from then on, as I looked through the files, at least once a year, and sometimes more often, in the early years of the National Committee, we had a lot of public education programs, whether they were for journalists or secondary school teachers. I even saw at one point that you briefed a group of American aerospace manufacturing people. <laughs> so you were involved right from the get-go in helping Americans understand China. And you continue to do so through today, and we'll get into the work you're doing um, with the National Committee today that's so important to us on our public intellectuals program. But before we get to that, I just want to start with a little bit of history about you, because I know you were born in a small town in Ohio, in Correct. fact, a call, town called Delaware, exactly. Ohio. How exactly. does that work? How do you have two states in the city's name? It was Delaware, you know, it's a French name, uh -huh. and uh, that's the name that was given to that little town. And how little was this little town? In my day, in the 1930s, it was between nine and 10,000. It was a market town uh, for the farmers. We had a county of 28,000. My dad was a small Jewish businessman. I worked in the store, 
And uh, my dad loved the community. He was so thankful that uh, he uh, was accepted by the community. He was a wonderful citizen, believed in it, and the merchants believed in the town. And so we had extremely good relationships. Um, by the way, last uh, when the parents died, <clears throat> I gave a lectureship to Ohio Wesleyan, which is in the town of Delaware. Mm -hmm. And uh, I go back every year. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. I know maybe yeah. not just your father loved the town, but you as well, because I, I know at least a couple times every couple of years I hear you say, oh, I'm going back home to give a lecture in my old hometown. And then uh, later, later this month, I'm going to do that. That's terrific. Yes. That's really wonderful. So yeah. what was it? People always ask me how I got involved in China. <clears throat> you know, a Jewish family in a landlocked, well, Michigan's not so landlocked because we have the five lakes. But how did you become interested in Asia growing up in a place like Delaware? Well, I think a lot of us, you know, I was 15 when World War II was over. And in my high school, we had graduates who went to war and not all of them came back. And uh, my father had two sisters who were in uh, Holocaust and did not come back with their families. And so the people who said, the leaders of our country, that we had to prevent war, we had to work to build a world uh, where countries got along with each other and understood more about each other, meant a great deal to us. And uh, as somebody who is not a local, I mean, I, I was a completely local kid, but my family is Jewish and came from the outside. And so I had a greater interest maybe in the world than some of my classmates. Mm -hmm. But I think we all shared the belief that we want to have a world and then we need to have better understanding. But when I got drafted in the army, I got sent to a mental hospital in the Korean War. A lot of people I took basic training with uh, went to Korea and some of them died too. Mm -hmm. But when I got through basic training, I, uh, because I had had sociology and psychology as an undergraduate, I got sent to a mental hospital. Hmm. So Where? in, Where in uh, Valley Forge Army Hospital okay. in Philadelphia, the biggest mental hospital in the Army at those days. And so when you had gone to Ohio Wesleyan right. and studied sort of sociology, psychology, right. and then right after school were drafted? Was drafted, yes. Okay. So uh, after I was... Uh, drafted and served in the mental hospital. I had a doctor I worked for named Aaron Beck, who, by the way, is one of the best psychiatrists in the country. Uh, he's extremely well known for cognitive therapy. But uh, we worked together and I learned, and so I decided as a graduate student that what I would do is study mental health and society. And that was my PhD thesis. It had nothing to do with Asia. But when I was finishing, one of my teachers, Florence Klecken, an anthropologist, said, you're so provincial. <laughs> How can you understand your own society if you don't have perspective on the outside? Hmm. She had done a lot of field work in other countries. And she said, you've got to go abroad before you settle down. And I talked to my wife, and she was willing. And then the question was where to go. And she said, well, it ought to be to a culture that's different. You shouldn't go to Europe. It's too similar. You ought to understand something very different. Uh, one of the places she considered was Japan because it's a different culture and yet it has somewhat modernization. So you can see how a different culture faces modernization. So why don't you go there? So I talked to my wife, and she said, it's okay. I applied for a grant and got it, and I spent two years in Japan. I came back, and I went to, after I came back, 
I was trying to decide whether I wanted to be just a sociologist of mental health. And I decided I really wanted to work on Japan. I was really getting into another culture. And I went back to see one of my teachers named John Pelzel. And he said... This is at Wesleyan? It's at Harvard. At, oh, you were at Harvard. I, I got my PhD at Harvard PhD, in, in okay. social relations. In, okay. And social relations in those days was a wonderful new field that tried to combine social psych, uh, clinical psych, anthropology, and behavioral science. And uh, Harvard really attracted some wonderful people. Uh, you may not know all these names, but among social scientists, among my fellow graduate students were Cliff Geertz and Chuck Tilley and Robert Bella, you know, uh, Bella's. Uh, who were among the most famous social scientists of my generation. We were all graduate students together, and we were trying to understand other cultures. Uh, so my first job was in the psychiatry department at Yale. I was bringing mm -hmm. social science to them, and that was... But when I came back uh, at Thanksgiving vacation to talk to one of my former professors, Pelzel, um, he said, I, how would you like to study China? I said, I never thought about why. He said, well, you know, this is a critical time in Harvard and American universities. Um, <clears throat> because the Joe McCarthy period has been so rampant, nobody wanted to teach about Red China. Mm -hmm. And so there weren't any courses. And a number of the teachers, uh, like John Fairbank and some other people like Doak Burnett, uh, who were interested in uh, building up relations with modern China, decided that Lucian Pai was another that the way to really get China in the curriculum was not to be a ghetto with East Asian languages, but to get them in departments. We wanted a, a political scientist in China. We wanted an anthropologist, a sociologist, an economist, a lawyer. We wanted people in all those disciplines because that would get it into the mainstream. And after World War II, when America realizes that we need to know more about the world, we ought to uh, have a much deeper understanding, and the way to bring it in the mainstream is through those disciplines. But we don't have any senior professors that Harvard wants to hire. We had some close calls. Uh, there were one of you probably know, <laughs> an economist at the University of Michigan. Yes. Uh, that some people at Harvard thought was good. But other professors said, well, it isn't quite our cup of tea. Not, not so easy. Wonderful man, but wonderful not always man. so easy to deal with. And, and not always. And somehow Harvard chose not to have him as a professor. And there was a guy named C.K. Yang, a sociologist in Pittsburgh. But he wasn't considered quite theoretical and strong enough. So they decided they would get money from Ford and some of these other places to try out some young people and get them trained who had already gotten their Ph.D. in the discipline. See if they could learn about a uh, topic and learn about China. Hmm. And then if they worked out, then they might uh, be able to stay on. So uh, I got a three-year postdoc at Harvard and started right away. Within uh, twenty, within 48 hours at the time I saw John Pelzel, I was signed up. Wow. A little different than hiring people these oh, days. <laughs> well, part of the problem was that I had an offer from Columbia that I was considering, they wanted to know right away. I see. So Harvard needed to know. So as soon as I got through the interview with Pelzel, he called up John Fairbank. John Fairbank called everybody on his committee, and within 48 hours, I had an offer, and I accepted wow. right away. Wow. Uh, so I was signed up for three years of a postdoc to see if I would work out as a China specialist. So when I was uh, taking beginning Chinese in 1961, 
and uh, sitting in on classes. I was, I was never a regular student. I was, people say, were you a Fairbanks student? No. I was a postdoc, and I sat in on classes, mm -hmm. uh, but I was, was not a student. So uh, I took all kinds of courses and read the books that I could read at that time. And after two years at Harvard, we decided to go to Hong Kong. And when I was in Hong Kong, uh, that was just emerging as the place to study China. And uh, because our government uh, didn't have active relations with China, the job of the State Department official was to learn about China. And the place to learn about it was Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So the Consulate General in Hong Kong was the great uh, center. And a lot of the people that you know, like uh, Nick Platt and Morta Bramowitz and Jazz Freeman and Stape Roy and, and all the greats of the dead generation, um, Charlie Hill, they worked in Hong Kong and they learned Herb Levin. They were a wonderful group. And the um, uh, writers, like Stan Carnot, were in yep. Hong Kong too. And we scholars started hanging out. And I was there and had a little office in 1963 uh, when I went there. Just before I, uh, just as I, when I went there, I got a letter from uh, a guy who had been a lawyer a student at Berkeley named Jerry Cohen. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to come to Hong Kong this year too. Can you find housing? <laughs> and so I, I found a place right across the street. And so the two of us lived across the street in Hong Kong in 1963-64, and our kids played together. And uh, during that year, some of the foundations of the United States decided to set up a center for scholars of the world to hang out. And scholars didn't have enough money, to, they didn't have the books, they didn't have the access. But if we had some center where they could all operate, that that would work. And so they sent out a guy from New York who was supposed to set up the center. He didn't do very well. He didn't take much action. So Jerry Cohen, who was then 33 years old, uh, already had a lot of contacts with the foundation. They said, Jerry, uh, see if you can get the center started. So he rented a couple rooms in the Peninsula Hotel Annex. I never knew that about the center, that it was actually Jerry who motivated, got it shipped. He, ship he, rented, he rented the place at 155 Argos oh, Street. Really? And I was in Hong Kong, and so I was in on this, and took part in, in seeing people and getting organized. So he was the major domo, and I was maybe an assistant domo. <laughs> and so we got the University Service Center started, and that became the great place. It was a wonderful place. Um, I've heard people talk about Riga as a place where Russian specialists settled before World War II, but Hong Kong was even more. And uh, we had as many as 30 or 40 people, so all the people from different institutions. Mm -hmm. We had uh, senior people like Doak Barnett and Lucian Pai, who stayed there for a while. Uh, but it, it was an, an unusual place. It was no hierarchy. It was nobody was boss. We were all there together to learn about China. And because we came from different disciplines, it was a very broad discussion. And we got a lunchroom. And every day, we were everybody was discovering something new. Uh, and so, so we were talking to China from morning to night, and uh, all the all the things were new. Franz Schirmann's book on organization and uh, decision making had just come out, and it was, he was one of the first ones to work in Hong Kong there before the center got started. But all the people that you think of in the field who really became China specialists were at that university service center, and there had been a third force called Union Research that. And collected books and materials. 
and they let us use their files and books. But they were going downhill. Nobody wanted the third force. And so gradually we developed our own library and reference materials. It was, that was, I would say, the great center. And we all became friends. So people at different universities, you know, Mike Oxenberg and uh, Tom uh, Robinson and Tom Bernstein and, Mike and Dick Mads, Mike Lampton and uh, Dick Madsen and Tom, and Marty White and Tom Bernstein, uh, Tom Bernstein Andy Waller, Genoa, right. uh, you, you name it, anybody who was right. in the field at that time. And we all hung out at the University Service Center, Dick totally. Solomon, uh, and we knew each other well. It really was a wonderful it sort of a, melting pot, brought you all together in ways that would be difficult these days because well, they're so segmented. And it was, we were all very broad at that time. Mm-hmm. We, we thought right. of big issues because uh, they were all related to each other. And because you couldn't get into China to narrow, tunnel exactly. down into do the narrow issues. Right. And so I went back every summer. So I was there 63, 64, then went back summer 65, 66, 67. Mm-hmm and collected material. And my first idea was I was going to try to find refugees from maybe two or three villages and write up what that community was like. Because I, th- I thought a sociologist shouldn't be talking about uh, Beijing. He should be talking about something over the region. But I couldn't find enough people from one place. Later, uh, Ungers and Madsen found this place called Chen Village. Right. They found a bunch of people, but I didn't when I was there. So what I decided to do was to study Guangdong, which was the place nearby where we had the best information, do a regional study of what was going on there. I had the good, good fortune of getting some good uh, refugees who came out who'd worked in various organizations and uh, finally get them to tell me things. And the three main newspapers, the Nanfang Rebao, Guangzhou Rebao, and uh, Yangcheng Wanbao were all available. And we had pretty complete runs. The US government had gotten a lot of that. Um, And so uh, uh, I was able to get quite a bit of information. Um, Later, when I was able to go to Guangzhou the first time in 73, that uh, was on a, a delegation with an, a, a group of first group of scientists. Uh, people in Guangzhou were amazed; they knew so much about it. <laughs> but uh, it, it wasn't shocking. It doesn't take, you know, uh, all the people who came from Guangzhou to describe it. We had maps, we had uh, accounts, and the history books that we had. We had newspapers. One of the things that I could do was talk about the differences. You know, with people say oh, it's all propaganda. But you know, one of the things I discovered was that they started land reform in Guangdong, and then a few months later they said, "Whoops, they did it wrong," and they did it wrong. So, you know, you can see what how they did it at first, and you can see how they did it later, and what changed and why it changed, and you got a lot of refugees to talk about that. So that became a very interesting topic for me, and became one of the most interesting parts of my book on what happened after 1949. It was the outsiders from the north who were sent down, the Tao Ju who took over from Yejini and so forth. And I was able to describe that. Well, okay, back at the ranch at Harvard. <laughs> so when I got back from uh, uh, Hong Kong the first time after a year, I gave my first class on, on uh, China, Chinese society. I think there were about 30 people. Du Wei Ming, who was a student of mine, Andy Needham was a student of mine in that class, Ted Farmer, there were a lot of people have been waiting to learn about China, and since I'd done a lot of refugee and stuck 
and uh, Leo Lee was in that mm -hmm. class. And Leo Lee and Dewey Ming had come to Harvard from Taiwan. They didn't know anything about Mingling. And so they wanted to learn about it. And Dewey Ming reminded me that I was so choked up and so tense that I was hoarse for the first week I was teaching a class. Uh, but on the way back on the boat, uh, coming from Hong Kong, I took a boat back. Hmm. I, I made out outlines of my lectures and collected materials and tried to organize to get, give an overview of Chinese society that nobody at that time had done. And so it was, it was fun, it was creative, uh, and I think I got a lot of it right. I, I, I'm, I'm very pleased in going back and reading over my old stuff. I think it's that we saw so many people that, you know, a lot of the refugees gave uh, bogus stories. But if you see a lot of them and you can get a sense of who is real and who isn't, uh, and you check it with the newspapers and the sources you have, and the government had, you know, occasional good sources, you can do a lot. You can learn a lot. So we did learn a lot. So with this move from Japan into the study of China and this very intense study and back and forth and repeated visits during the summers to Hong Kong and then going back to Harvard and teaching it, how were you able to keep up your both interest in Japanese and your language facility, and was there a conflict there? Did you also teach Japanese sociology? I did. And uh, Reichauer and Fairbank had a disagreement about that. Huh. And Reichauer said, I'd, since I'd done so much in Japan, he wanted, when I got the job, that the job was created for me. Mm -hmm. It's called Chinese Society because Fairbank raised the money. But Reichauer insisted that I be allowed to teach a course on Japan. And I had formed so many good friendships in Japan. I had learned a lot and had done the same kind of thing for Japan that I wanted to keep it up. And so I was allowed to do it. My, you know, now people have such good training as language and so forth. My training was never good enough. And uh, well, I kept at modest. it. I, no, no, and it's not modest. I kept at it. I kept at it. And 75, 76, when I was back in Japan, I had a five-month crasher course mm. at the language center to keep it better. And I've kept tutors all the way. Even when I started on the Dung Project in 2000, when I retired, I hired a tutor. And uh, I work with her every day to improve my language. Mm. So I think as a sociologist, the, the good part of my language is it's very natural. You know, I didn't learn the archaic expressions. I learned what people use. Mm -hmm. And um, I think people feel comfortable talking to me because I, I talk like people talk. Right. You know, I mean, that's the kind of language. I think my skill is I've learned how to do that. And I've kept working at it. And I still work on language. I still have a, you know, what I do is that right now, I think it's a great way to do it. I have diskettes where some Chinese is introducing something, and it's in characters at the bottom of the screen, and he says it, and then I can stop it, and if I don't get it, and I look up the character and figure out what it is. So I think what I have is persistence. I, I, it, it, it was a strain on me that I had to, work so hard and continue to work so hard. And that was a strain on my wife and the kids. I felt bad that I was, and that I was going back to Hong Kong every summer to try to, you know, get the basic research that I felt was absolutely necessary to do my job. And you went on your own without your family when you went back in the summers? Usually, because mm -hmm. uh, they it was hard for them to go and they felt they, were, right. they wanted to go to camp and see their friends. Right. And so they were there in 63, 64 when I was there for the full year. Right. 
But afterward, mostly I went by myself. But one of your children is involved in Japan, Japan. right? Well, that, in 1975-76, my eldest son, he got shifted around and gone, and he had some adjustment difficulties. So my wife says, I'm not going for a full year to Asia until he graduates high school. Mm. He graduated high school in 1975, so I had a year off. And it was not possible to do field work in China those right. days. I got money to go to Japan. And Japan was a hot topic that day because Japan was growing fast, and I had lots of contacts. So I went in 1975-76 for a year. And my eldest son was away. He was a freshman in college by that year. But my second son was just starting junior high, and he had a choice whether to go to a Nishimachi, which was the English language school Ed Reichardt's sister-in-law ran, uh, or he could go to what was known as a school for returned Japanese. Uh, and he decided he would go for the school for returned Japanese. So this was a school that uh, took Japanese kids who had been abroad and tried to make them Japanese during the year. <laughs> so he was the only uh, non-Japanese kid in the class. Uh, but he was learning with these Japanese kids uh, about Japan. So he got full dose of, of Japanese and could do that at a high school age. And when he went to Princeton, he didn't major in Japanese studies. I don't think he took a single course on Japan, hmm. but he had a lot in high school. He decided, I was breaking up with my first wife at this time, he decided that he would like to go back and finish high school in that school. Hmm. So we went back and spent another two years in that school hmm. and graduated from that school in Japan. Uh, so his Japanese was very good. Yes. So when he got to Princeton, he'd had a lot of background in Japan. He took political science, international relations. He didn't take a single course in Japan, but he wrote his thesis about Japan. He had the good fortune <clears throat> that uh, one of my Japanese students, a diet member, I said, is, can my, is there any way my son can get an internship, you know, working in the summer, you know, when he was in Princeton? And he said, yeah, I'll ask my dad. So his dad was a diet member and got a job in the diet member's office. And a month or two before he was to go, this diet member became the Minister of Defense. Oh. So, so my son goes and works in the office. He says to his thesis on Japanese diet members' attitudes toward defense, which was making pretty good use of an opportunity. Yes. So he wrote a great thesis <laughs> <laughs> at Princeton on diet members' attitudes, and he went on to get a PhD at Berkeley. He was a professor at Berkeley in Japanese studies. So you have been an academic for much of your adult life, but there was a break. Um, there was a period when you left academia for a two-year stint to go work in the U.S. government, in the intelligence sector. How did that come about? I had always, you know, thought it might be nice to work in the government, and I once got an offer to go to work in INR in the State Department. That's in Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Intel yes, Intelligence and Research. And um, my wife said, no, we can't go. At that. It was an earlier time. It would be hard to get away. So I decided I couldn't take it. Then in 1993, Clinton was elected. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends at Harvard, Joe Nye, had just gone to help the national head the National Intelligence Council. And uh, one day he calls up and he said, Ezra, how would you like to come and be the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia? I said, I hadn't thought of it, but you know, 
I think I'd like it. So he said, you can't talk about it because you had to get clearance first. Uh, so don't talk about it to other people for six months. Uh, but try to go through the clearances. Uh, now, Joe uh, had been teaching political, and he got, a, he, he may not know this, but he got his PhD on Africa. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he'd worked in Europe. He didn't know a thing about Asia. And when we had become friends, and I had said to him at Harvard, this is before he went to Washington, Joe, you ought to learn more about Japan. So he said, okay. So he became head of the Center for International Affairs, and he asked me to organize a seminar on Japan, a faculty seminar. And so we ran it for a year or two. So that's how we became good friends on the Japan thing. So when he went to Washington, and most of the people who are national intelligence officers are from intelligence community in Washington, but they try to have a few from the outside. And so Joe thought it would be just a perfect thing. So I was the one guy from Harvard he brought down to be with him. Mm -hmm. So the first year in Washington, 93, 94, I worked with Joe, under Joe. And he, he, he was great. He had been uh, in the State Department before, so he knew Washington. He was a political scientist. I was very naive. I didn't know Washington. I had known a lot of China specialists in the government through Hong Kong, but I didn't know how Washington worked. And I wasn't part of that, that crowd. I was interested, and I was interested in policy toward China and Japan. But I, I didn't know how the place worked, and so I was a greenie. But I learned a lot. It was a, it was a good two years for me because I, I learned. The, the second year, uh, Joe was asked to be Assistant Secretary of Defense, and he asked me to go with him to defense. But I thought, I'm not a defense specialist, so I stayed on. And Harvard only gives two years leave. So I took the second year and stayed in the National Intelligence Council for two years. So I learned a lot about how government people... I wish I'd have had that when I was much younger because I think it really helped me understand what policy is like, how people work. And, of course, you do learn a few things from the intelligence that's secret that you pick up that way. So that was... After that, uh, I was in demand in the kind of go-between community. You you probably know that in Columbia they do a thing called the American Assembly, mm -hmm. and it was started under Eisenhower. Right. They pick a topic every year, and um, after I got back from Washington, people at Columbia asked me if I'd like to head an American Assembly on China because I'd had that experience in Washington, and I said, well, if I'm going to do that, I'd want the people who write papers to have experience to go to China together. Let's raise some money for that if you want to do it. They said, yes, we do. So I got a group of people together, a bunch of China specialists, all University Service Center friends. <laughs> uh, and, in, and when we went to Shanghai, it was called the Dream Team because I think I had the best team. I, I, I got Doug Ball and Mike Oxenberg and Harry Harding and uh, Mike Lampton and uh, Dwight Perkins. By the way, Dwight was, uh, it was in the same situation I was. He was a young economist at Harvard and when they decided that none of the other economists would do, uh, he had written a PhD thesis on China. Uh, they picked him up, and he got that. So I had this chance to travel all over China, and we wrote this book. How long did you travel? How long was that? I think it was about two weeks, maybe. Okay. And uh, we wrote a, a book called Living with China. Uh, I, I was the editor of that. Uh, looking back on that, I think it's a great book. And I think it hasn't gotten the attention it deserved. Some no. some people have just picked it up now because it's so relevant. It's 
to what the United States ought to be doing. And it was how two countries very different have to learn to live with each other. We uh, did have some very good sessions with young scholars uh, in Shanghai and Beijing, uh, and then came back and then ran this American Assembly uh, as a result in, uh, on China. And I, I recall that. I think I recall being jealous that uh, the National Committee her? hadn't done that, because <laughs> uh, it really was a wonderful group. You put together, as you say, a dream team. And you mentioned those some a lot of the names you just mentioned, and some of the ones you mentioned previously, Scalpino and Lucian Pai and Dope Barnett. Those were all the sort of first generation of China scholars right. who really were the founders of the National right. Committee. Bob was our first chairman, and Doak the second, and Lucian a bit later. And how do you recall how you became involved with the committee? I know I... Well, what I, one of the things I remember is that when Ping Pong came, right. somebody named Jan Barris <laughs> called me up and said, do you have anybody who can do some interpretation? And I was close to my students. I was just a few years older than them. And... Uh, I was a sociable, affable type. I was not, you know, um, maybe this is not a fair way to put it, but Fairbank was aloof. You know, he was, you re people respected, right. and you could, but you were a little bit frightened of him. Mm -hmm. But I somehow was not very frightening. You <laughs> <laughs> <It> still aren't. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a lot of different views on our, among the students in those days. There were some... Uh, radicals. Uh, Jim Peck was one of them, mm -hmm. uh, who had been my student, and then who criticized me. He, he was a section leader of my class and criticized me, uh, <laughs> lecture, criticized my lectures in, in the section uh, that I taught. And it was a tough time when we were trying to balance this all. But <clears throat> there were a lot of students that uh, I got along with and very comfortable with. And so I remember when you called, I tried to get some of them would have pretty good language. We didn't really have interpreters, in, as you know, in those right. days. And so we got Tom Gold, Tom, and uh, <clears throat> we got Perry Link, uh, and uh, Guy Alito, right. people like that who could do the interpretation for you. And so that was your first group of interpreters. So And much appreciated. You, you, you've mentioned all the names you've mentioned did interpreting for us, but you haven't mentioned the one gem that you found for us. June that was later. Right. Who's, that was later. That was in 74. That was a little later. She was not yet our student. Right. And she, I, we, you and I both know June very well. And uh, I, I was the kind, it was easy to be a friend of the students. And they called Professor Fairbank, Professor Fairbank, and he called me Ezra. <laughs> 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 and uh, June was that way, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to know her, and I can see that she's a special kind of person. She was occasionally uh, quite talkative. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but she, she knew so damn much about everything. She I mean, does. I, I she couldn't believe does. it about medicine. Uh, sports, woodworking, uh, woodworking, history, history yeah. political science, but, yeah. economics, yeah. you name it. And, she and, knows she, about it. and she could interpret and learn things so damn fast. And, well, you know, because you used her. And yes. She was your star interpreter for many she years. She was, and we actually <coughs> hired her full time, not just to do interpreting, but as a program officer for many years. She Is she still around now? Yes, and yes. She's still going back and forth to China, doing all sorts of great things. I'll give her my uh, best because I. I, I liked our students. I mean, I, I was a genuine friend, and, and uh, they regarded me as a friend. I was 
I tried to help them with their careers, and there were a lot of talent, and it was exciting. And another thing, as you know, in those early days in the 60s, we were all hoping we'd have a chance to go to China and to be in China and to have Chinese friends. And when that began to happen in the 70s, we all wanted to be on the first tour and the mm -hmm. first group, and we're jealous of those who got there before we did. But within a decade or so, we had those opportunities. And we went and we learned. And in a way, in the 60s, before China opened up, all of us were part of the group that believed China's going to be important and that you can't run international relations with leaving out the country with the biggest population. And that someday we had no idea it was going to be as strong today as it is. Uh, but we knew it was going to be important, and we wanted America to have relations. And some of that older generation, like Fairbank and Barnett, who had been in China in the 30s, uh, were, had friends there. Uh, Jim Thompson was another uh, who had friends there. Uh, they wanted to, They felt there was a lot of people there to work with and that we could develop relationships. And so that happened. It did, and sort of sadly seems to have peaked, whether it's the our own government's policies, China, tightening up in China, in China itself. We, the committee, have been very disturbed about the fact that what once was quite a robust communications between academics and specialists in China and the United States seems to be on a slippery slope at this point. You've lived through a lot of periods when we've had our ups and our downs with China, and as well as our ups and downs with Japan. But with China, it's at least after World War II and after the period of the occupation, our differences with Japan don't seem to be quite as cyclical or have the, the great highs and the deep lows that we have with China. Do you think that's an, an accurate description? Or I mean, I know we did have a rough patch uh, when everybody thought Japan was going to take over the world and take over the United States, but even so, it seems to me it's been a somewhat smoother ride. What do you think? And do you think it's going with U.S. relations with both countries? Well, we do have a terrible relationship with China now. And I think, as you know, it's not just the Trump administration. It's the white males who lost jobs in manufacturing who wonder why they don't have jobs. Uh, it's the uh, people of our country who see Chinese military as strong and uh, that they have a communist country uh, with strong authoritarianism. And when they get stronger, isn't that going to be scary? And what do we do about it? And it's the businessmen who were doing very well in the early days. And now they have Chinese competitors who can sometimes push them around. And the Chinese government often is not as careful as it could be in how to handle our businesses in following international law. So they're, they're by our standards of fair competition, that China is not doing very well. And my, my take on China now is that they're going through a tough patch too, that they, they, it was very exciting when they grew very early, but um, their growth is slowing down now. And uh, there are a lot of people who are not completely satisfied. And the leaders saw what happened to the Soviet Union when Gorbachev came in. They saw what happened to Eastern European countries. They don't want that to happen to China. And 
they feel that the best way to keep it is to clamp down tight. And if they loosen up, they will let loose on all kinds of forces that will raise hell. And so we have a tougher China to deal with than we had before. I'm not as pessimistic as some people because I've seen times change. You know, I remember the McCarthy period. I remember the Korean War when we fought China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when, you know, our armies were involved in fighting their armies. And we're not doing that now. I remember the days, uh, you know, when we didn't have any relations. And now we have thick networks of people on both sides uh, who can still see each other and are willing to see each other. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm quite pleased that the number of students coming to, to Harvard has not changed. And Chinese still want to come, despite all that kind of problem. And when they go back, I've, I've had the privilege of being a speaker for the Chinese Student Association meeting when they welcome the new students every year, last few years, about three or 400 students. And they're still coming. And they still ask me to talk. Well, that's always good. <laughs> and what and about Japan? Your thoughts on Well, I, I think Japan? the problems with, with China are more serious than they were with Japan because China is bigger and stronger and has an army. The thing that I think helped us get over the Japan thing was two things. One was that they were a military ally in the Cold War. And in the 1980s, when we were still so worried about Japan overtaking us economically, we still had to work with them, you know, against the Soviet Union. And uh, even now, you know, we think of them as an ally against possibly China. So, and then the second thing is, Japan did not have the size and the capacity to have the economy. And uh, when the bubble burst uh, in 1989, things slowed down. Things were getting very tense, I remember, in the late 80s before that bubble burst. And I think it took a couple of years after that before things quieted down. Now you don't hear complaints about Japan at all. So I think I think what the reason, one of the basic reasons uh, the Americans are so upset with China. Somebody's passing us now for the first time in our history. Right. And we're not used to that. Right. Um, one of the things uh, I've just thought about as I did my book on China and Japan relations with each other is the fact that from about 2008 to 2014, they went through a period where China was passing Japan. And that was a hell of a thing. That was a very tense period and they are now coming out of it. And they're not becoming close friends, but they are not as tense and uptight as they were in 2014. When, and that, that's my dating of the period mm-hmm. from about 2008 to 2014. Because 2008, Beijing had the Olympics. Uh, it was extraordinarily successful. We had the financial crisis. Right. 2010, the uh, World Bank said the Chinese economy is larger than Japan's. And in 2008, they could begin to see that coming pretty quick. So in 2010, that happened. And by 2014, Xi Jinping and Abe were meeting and trying to work their way out of that, the worst. And I think they're now gradually beginning to work their way out of the worst. I don't think it's going to be that easy for the United States, but I do think that uh, next November, November 2020, is an opportunity for those of us who believe in a stronger U.S.-China relationship avoid dangers and to work on our common interest. 
we'll have a chance to, to lay out some ideas that the next administration could do. And I think those who have said that Japan, uh, that China relationship, that the engagement has not worked, they're, they're beginning to tone down. I think, mm -hmm. I think that those of us who wrote the letter to the Washington Post, I think that's had some impact. Some of the people, I think like Kurt Kimball, who were uh, you know, saying the engagement didn't work, he's a, he's a shrewd politician, uh, and he's not saying it quite as strongly as he was at that time. Well, he certainly won't get any argument from us. The National Committee has been all about engagement, and we've done that over the past... And I think you're still playing such an important role We are period. trying, and it's with good people like you that help us out. We didn't have time to talk about our public intellectuals program, but you've been such an enormous help on that. And it's not a surprise to me, having listened to you talk this afternoon about your students and your connection with your students, that you had very early on as a yeah. young professor, yeah. it's clear that you still have that relationship with your students. And I can see your great concern and care and interest in the participants in our public intellectuals program for which you are an advisor. And it's just really wonderful to that there is someone like you who does have such an interest, not just in the substance of what you're studying, but also in your successors and your students and the people that you're training. So I unfortunately... It came very naturally. It didn't, didn't require work, and it didn't... I, you know, I, I like those students, and uh, I guess when I at Ohio Western, I grew up in the town, so I knew some of those professors as a kid, and I thought of them as friendly, and a lot of them were very nice and warm and supportive to me, and maybe that became kind of a model of how you can... You know, small small town, uh, small college, friendly relationships. And I, I tried to create, recreate that at Harvard, too. And when I ran the undergraduate program in East Asian Studies for about 17 years, uh, we succeeded extremely well. We had a very warm, supportive group. And a lot of those people now are, uh, are doing great things. And you know a lot of those people. Well, okay. a lot of it, I'm sure, yeah. is partly due to you. So on on their behalf <laughs> and on the National Committee's behalf, I really want to thank you for all you've done for us. Well, starting I, I want to thank you 66. guys because it, it's been such a great thing to be part of. And it's so fulfilling to see uh, all the things you do and the programs you started and to take pleasure in talented people having a chance to grow and blossom. And they're appreciative, too. And it's wonderful. So I feel privileged to have been part of that group, too. And so I think I've gotten as much as I've given. Well, that's, that's a wonderful place to end because we certainly feel glad that you feel you've gotten a lot. You touch, we touched very briefly on this new book that you've written. So I would urge all of you who are listening to this podcast but who haven't yet watched the video that we are about to make with Ezra talking about his new book, that you do tune into that as well. And you can hear a little bit, because it's a long, big <laughs> book, rich, filled with wonderful stories and wisdom and thoughts and knowledge. And I urge everyone to go out and, and read it. And Ezra, thank you again thank you, for Jane. this afternoon, but more importantly, for all that you've done for us well, over the past 50 plus years. Well, thank you for all you've done that made all this possible, Jane. Thank you, dear. Thank you, dear.